This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Value Inspiration Podcast. My name is Ton Dobber, and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration. The purpose of my company is to help business software companies rethink what can be to become remarkable again. The goal that I have with this podcast is to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential that we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. So my strong belief is that we can think big, and therefore we should. Doing so will help to create a better world for all of us. This podcast is all about that. My guest on the podcast today is Vinny Merchandani, author of Silicon Color. Every one of us is being affected by technology. So I said, you know, we're no longer white or blue collar workers. We're really silicon collar workers. For various reasons, automation does not immediately reduce in labor savings. So it's much better to start off saying, how do I make my workers much more productive? As I call it, you know, how do I make them super workers? So you step back and you say, you know, we have three major problems in our labor economy. Why aren't we fixing that? We have real problems that we need to fix. Instead, we are speculating and worrying about things that may happen. You have to think about automation as a way of supplementing, augmenting your labor forces. And I don't think HR departments are helping the CEO much in, in helping them navigate through this rapidly changing labor economy. We have to keep evolving. If we keep clinging to those uh, tasks that machines can do more efficiently, we'll get frustrated. I'm surprised the ERP world is not rethinking every business process with automation as a front end. But we need to evolve beyond the cloud. This is Vinny. He's the author of Silicon Color, founder of Deal Architect, a former technology industry analyst at Gartner, and an outsourcing executive with PwC. Last but not least, he's an entrepreneur. He's also a thought leader on trends in software, outsourcing, and offshoring. I talked to Vinny about the way we should perceive technology impact on people in the foreseeable future. During this interview, you'll learn three things. Why it's better to start new initiatives with an augmentation mentality and not a replacement mentality. Why traditional thinking around labor is not going to work. And lastly, why we should be rethinking every business process with automation as a front end. So let's kick it off. My first question is related to your book, Vinny, The Silicon Collar, which you wrote towards the end of 16. But what struck me is that you have a very optimistic perspective on humans, machines and jobs. Your conclusion was an interesting one, that no one of us is no longer a white or a blue collar, but we're actually a silicon color worker. Technology at the end is shaping the workplace. Can you describe the reason behind the book and why you spend that particular focus on it? Uh, absolutely, Don. The, the, you know, the, the title Silicon Color came about because I interviewed um, 
executives in 50 different industry and work settings. You know, so everything from hospitals to oil companies to advertising firms to accounting firms to garbage collectors. And every one of their jobs is changing. So it doesn't matter whether we are white-collar workers, blue-collar workers, brown-collar workers, as in the case of UPS, yeah. pink-collar workers, you know, in, in ladies' occupations. Every one of us is being affected by technology. So I said, you know, we're no longer white or blue-collar workers. We're really silicon-collar workers. So that's how the title came about. So I started to write the book, Don, with a very optimistic perspective on how Machines are making us much better workers, safer, smarter, speedier. Exactly. And as you know, as I was interviewing all these companies, I got that impression, right? But then I stopped and said, you know, there is so much noise about automation killing millions of jobs. My book is going to look stupid because it's only going to talk about the optimistic side. So I stopped and I actually interviewed a number of academics and analysts were very pessimistic about a lot of job losses. Mm -hmm. And so in the book, I've analyzed a very depressing Oxford University report that said 47% of our jobs may disappear in the next, they didn't mention a time frame, but 47% of our jobs could be lost to machines. Gardner had a couple of reports that said a third of our jobs will be gone. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I had to look at the pessimistic side of it and and then I analyzed that and I said, you know, I don't necessarily agree with with um, their assumptions. Um, but then I said, you know, it, if I just criticize these reports, that's not going to be good enough. Let me go do some historical analysis of how automation actually affects jobs. So I looked at 100 years, a century of automation. I looked at groceries. I looked at banking. I looked at how automobiles have emerged and so on, and I found it only gradually affects jobs. So overall, you know, my, my thesis is technology is making, is affecting all our jobs, no question, and that's accelerating. But does that necessarily mean millions and millions of jobs lost? Over decades, yes, that's the impact, but short term, there are various reasons why it doesn't happen. So I tend to be very optimistic about machines. So what are the biggest shifts that you see in respect to this? What are the reasons why jobs are not being replaced? A few from your conclusion is that jobs are not being replaced by machines. They're actually creating more jobs. Is that correct? What's making that happen? So there's two, there's two trends that are happening, have been happening with automation throughout history. One is it does affect not complete jobs. They affect tasks. So they will replace certain tasks that all of us do. You know, so if you were a secretary 20 years ago, you gradually saw you weren't taking messages anymore because voicemail replaced that. You weren't doing any typing anymore because all of us got our own word processors. You weren't doing copying anymore because people had their own, you know, scanning and, and copying machines. They became more personal, right? But the secretarial job kept changing. It didn't disappear. Even today in the U.S., you won't believe it, we have 2 million secretarial jobs. They're doing other things. They're doing, you know, travel planning. They're doing, you know, they're doing a lot of stuff for their bosses. So typically automation 
threatens a complete job, usually it'll only affect a certain task or a couple of tasks, and those tasks disappear, but then the job changes. You know, same thing with banks, right? So ATM machines were supposed to completely replace tellers. Well, they haven't, right? There's so many in the U.S. Uh, because we have so many um, small community banks and savings and loans and so on. We still have 90,000 bank branches hiring half a million employees in those branches. Now, are they all traditional tellers? Very few of us go in and say, I want to cash this check or I want to get you know, money order. We go in when we have a problem or we go in when we want to open a new you know, investment type or whatever. So the teller's job has changed, hasn't completely replaced. The ATM machine didn't replace the teller, has helped it evolve into a different area. So over and over again, I saw um, machines changing jobs. But on the other hand, machines do create a new generation of jobs. I mean, my, my favorite example is the lawnmower, right? When it was first introduced um, over 100 years ago, People said, "Oh my God, it's gonna, you know, it's gonna um, kill uh, kill certain jobs." Well, actually, two of the biggest industries that we and I know, sporting industry and suburban housing, would not exist without the lawnmower. I mean, without lawns, we couldn't have a sporting industry, right? So the lawnmower actually created a whole generation of new jobs that nobody had even anticipated a hundred years ago. So there are many examples of technology, actually. You know, we, most humans think in linear terms. So we look at it and we say, this is going to change this way. The change is usually much different than what we expect. Exactly. If you look at recent history, there are so many jobs these days that didn't exist 10 years ago. My son, for example, is, is a big fan of Spotify. And at Spotify, there are people that carry the title playlist manager for a living. That's because there's technology that has created a complete new industry. And as a consequence of that, there are new people getting a job. Now, I was reading a book of Tim O'Reilly recently. And in his book, WTF, What's the Future and Why It's Up to Us? He mentioned the winners of tomorrow are making the critical choice. Automate to replace or augment to do more and better. And particularly the last part, it's what always intrigues me. What's your take on this? How can augmentation create bigger value? And have you uncovered any good examples that are worth sharing here? Well, you know, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I haven't heard Tim's um, uh, podcast that, you, that you're mentioning. But, you know, typically when I interviewed all these executives, I didn't hear any one of them who said, at least told me, I'm doing this because I want to replace a thousand employees. They said it because they did it because they said it'll make our workers more productive. So I think most people start off with the augmentation mentality, not a replacement mentality. True. Over time, you know, they will be able to replace. But I don't think I think most companies have become realistic that automation doesn't automatically just deliver labor savings that you may start off with. Some of them start off with that intention for various reasons. Automation does not immediately reducing labor savings. So it's much better to start off saying, how do I make my workers much more productive? As I call it, you know, how do I make them super workers? Yeah, exactly. Uh, is, a much better, is a much better attitude to take about automation. Do you have an example of the super worker phrase? 
you mentioned it a couple of times uh, in your blogs as well and in your book. It's an interesting way to to refer to it. Several, several examples, you know. So UPS, the, the 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 package delivery company, they have been investing in telematics and sensors and trucks for I don't know twenty twenty five years. Their some of their drivers, uh, they have a you know they honor they have an honor list, have driven a million miles without a single accident. I mean that that is not doable without technology, and that to me is an example of a super workers. Yeah. Um, Amazon Web Services, the data centers, have in the last ten years delivered fifty price cuts. Fifty, yeah. right? There's no way human beings can be that productive without the help of machines. If you look at Foxconn that makes Apple's um, iPhones and iPads and most Apple devices and also for HP and a bunch of other technology companies, look at the productivity they've been able to deliver, right? Billions of devices, high quality, and you know under a lot of secrecy, and they've been able to do that. There is no way you can do that without the precision machining, without the robots and so on next to the employees. So I think there are many examples where we've taken labor productivity and efficiency to a, a scale that we couldn't have imagined 20 years ago. That's my example. You know, that's what I call super workers. Yeah, Individually, exactly. they're able to do things that we couldn't even imagine a few years ago. True. I recently read one of your blogs where you were talking about super salespersons. I think you were referring to that in relation to a piece from IDC. And although IDC was positioning this as an example where CRM was the main driver for the results, you didn't agree with that. And you said, we need a new category of products to make super salespersons. Can you explain it a little bit further? Yeah, you know, I mean, to me, CRM takes too much credit for for uh, revenue growth. To be able to generate revenue, you can have the best salespeople. If you don't have the most modern and attractive products, a good salesperson can only do so much. If you don't have a good business model, you can't sell as well, right? So think in, in, your, in the software industry. If you try to sell on-premise software today, no matter how good a salesperson, how successful is that person going to be, okay, right? Right. Um, if you have a business model that is not attractive, take your son's example of Spotify. If you're still trying to sell complete albums rather than, you know, buy the individual song or a streaming, who's going to buy your product? Right. Yes. So to me, CRM sometimes takes too much credit for revenue growth. You need good salespeople, but you also need good product, modern product, you know, product that is more technologically advanced. Um, and also you need a very compelling business model. So, you know, that, that, that was my, that was my, uh, little, um, disagreement that IDC was, you know, don't give CRM credit, all the credit you can't, you need, you need new products. You need new business models in addition. Yeah, true. Agreed. It's a combination of a lot of factors and talking about that in your book, you're, you're, you're referring to a lot of examples. Were there any examples that you found that were, were particularly about artificial intelligence? 
Were there any examples that were helping a company to really shift their competitiveness as a consequence of using this type of technology? So, you know, I interviewed uh, KPMG about how the audit function is changing. And in their case, you know, they're starting to look at a lot of cognitive stuff to allow the auditors to do, you know, much more smart auditing. And they've started to use Watson, IBM's Watson as part of that. I think there are early examples. Um, I saw quite a few examples of what's called robotic process automation. That's not AI. It's more, um, you know, bots taking over uh, small tasks, white collar tasks. Those are fairly successful in banking and a few other insurance and a few other areas. Artificial intelligence, Tan, is going through a very hyped up phase right now. Yeah. It has been for, God, Alan Turing first defined his famous test of when a machine can be called equivalent to a human being, I don't know what, 70 years ago? So ever since we've been saying machines are getting smarter and smarter and smarter, in the current phase, the excitement is around machine learning, right? Because we have so much data and so much computing power in the cloud that we say we can train machines a lot more efficient, a lot better than we could five years, 10 years, 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. That's true, but honestly, the scenarios that human beings can handle are still so much more complex that machine, you know, we can only train machines in a handful of scenarios. And those usually aren't complete enough. So, you know, to me, AI is going through another hype cycle. It will be useful in spots, but nowhere near the the promises that people are making today. That's an interesting one. And those are exactly the examples that I'm on a hunt for to find. I think I've found a couple and I'm going to spend more time on that in future podcasts. Now, there is, of course, already a year between your book and where we are today. In the meantime, have you come across any examples that's already changing the office of the CFO or the impact the office of the CFO can make? Or, for example, technology that is having a big impact on the PMO office in a project organization? Well, I think think on the CFO side, a very promising area is the whole payable function. You know, so applying artificial intelligence concepts to analyze um, payment information for fraud detection, for overpayments, things in that area. Clearly, that that's not new, but it's getting more sophisticated. True. Um, you know, treasury management is in other areas where, you know, any anything that involves trading, as we've seen in the banking sector, is being is being uh, taken to a next level by machines. So I think the whole CF. I mean the analytics part of the CFO function is obviously evolving very rapidly. So I, I think, I think uh, there are a number of areas where the CFO is, is benefiting from these newer technologies. You know, like I said, KPMG is looking at new audit techniques using cognitive stuff. Are they in that respect using technologies that act like human-machine combinations? In other words, where they are actually creating a bigger impact together? Or is it just an area where people are freed up by the machines in order to spend more time doing the job they were actually hired to do in the first place? It's it's generally augmentation, you know, so it'll be in better sampling data, in better uh, risk analytics. You know, if you think of an audit, to make all kinds of judgment calls, right? Mm 
So exactly. having a machine help in some of the um, support of that judgment is the best application. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, Auditing involves a lot of statistical analysis and so on. So, you know, it, it, it's 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 not new. It's classic applications actually, but because we have so much more compute and data, we can do you know that much that much more sophisticated analytics. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, in, in one of your blogs, you mentioned that we should be more worried about the threats posed by our labor economy by the millions of unfilled jobs rather than to be yeah, focused uh, about what, what robots are going to do with those jobs. That's an interesting statement in itself. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, so, you know, certainly this is in the U.S. I'm sure you have similar in, in slightly different ways in Europe. But we have three different um, challenges in our labor economy. So our Bureau of Labor Statistics every month issues a report on the state of the labor economy. And for almost five years running now, they have reported we have 5 million unfilled jobs, wow. like in trucking. Most of them are blue-collar, trade-related jobs. But trucking, for example, truck drivers, the industry has been screaming for every year the shortage is fifty to 100,000 truck drivers. Um, yeah. So that's one one problem we haven't solved. In fact, it's been around for five years. The other problem we have is we have a lot of white collar graduates who have a trillion and a half dollar in student debt, but they can't find jobs that pay them well enough to pay off that debt, right? So it's another thing the labor market is telling us. You're training too many um, young graduates with the wrong skills. But has it got to do with the fact that technology has already taken their jobs away? Or is it just a simple fact that this has already happened 10 years ago and it's simply lagging behind? It was oversupply. I mean, you know, too many attorneys, too many accountants, too many, you know, in a free, in a free economy like ours, there is no central planning that says, hey, you know, we only need a million accountants. We're producing a million and a half. I mean, we should, but we don't. And so the market just reacts and it's the only way it can. It doesn't have enough jobs for them, right? Yeah. So that's the other um, problem with the labor economy. A third problem with the labor economy is our immigration has been somewhat uncontrolled. You know, so we have a lot of undocumented immigrants. We have, there's been a lot of misuse of our H-1B visas or other visas and so on. So you step back and you say, you know, we have three major problems in our labor economy. Why aren't we fixing that? Instead, we're all worried about automation is going to kill all our jobs. So, you know, to me, <laughs> the contrast is we have real problems that we need to fix. Instead, we are speculating and worrying about things that may happen. Yeah. So that, that, that's where my, my comment came from. Yeah, yeah, interesting. It's an interesting one in itself. At the end... There should be, again, more focus on the work rather than the jobs. And everything should be aligned to do the work that needs to be done and really mixing what people should do and what machines should do or what machines can do to help them do that job in a better way. On yeah. the other hand, Tom, I, I, I felt very good about our job economy because I'd, it made me study, I, even though I was looking for automation, I had to go and study the job economy, a lot of occupations in a lot more detail than I had ever considered 
right? And so our job economy has, the Bureau of Labor Statistics tracks 800 occupations. I mean, occupations I'd even, even heard about. Yeah, true. The other thing I found was we, um, we tend to look at the big companies as the major employers. They're actually only the Fortune 500 only hires 10% of our, civil, of our civilian workforce. Yeah. So where are everybody else hired? They're hired in tier one and tier two suppliers. They're hired in service firms like sure. accounting firms and advertising firms and attorneys and so on. They're hired in franchisees. I mean, I don't know how big it's in Europe, but certainly in the U.S., you know, not just McDonald's. Uh, Ace Hardware has franchises. Yeah. Um, travel com- American Express has travel cruise franchises and so on. A more recent phenomenon is employment on platforms. So you'll be surprised at how many people use the Amazon, fulfillment by Amazon, to run small businesses. Yeah, true. Uh, you know, so there are millions of jobs in franchises, millions of jobs in, in platforms. I mean, Apple has paid out in the last 10 years from the iOS store $80 billion to small businesses. Yeah. Um, and, and then I saw a whole bunch of other small businesses that didn't exist 20 years ago. So alternative healthcare, ethnic uh, groceries, ethnic restaurants. There is so many jobs in this economy that, that we don't on a day-to-day even realize exist, right? And so we, I think we've worried too much about, <laughs> about what's going out there without necessarily going out and talking to our neighbors to see you know, what, what everyone's doing. There's a, the economy is very strong. I agree. To finish the podcast, what do you believe are the top three trends that we should prepare ourselves for? Or in other words, what advice would you give a CEO to focus on next? <clears throat> well, I think, I think there are clear um, labor challenges in an economy, you know, in a, in, a, in a very strong economy like now, right? So they have to be focused on where do we get our traditional uh, thinking around labor is not going to work. In the U.S., we may have to go back to hiring more apprentices. Yeah. You have to think about automation as a way of supplementing, augmenting your labor forces, I mean, the whole labor market is just going through a dramatic shift. And I don't think HR departments are helping the CEO much in, in helping them navigate through this rapidly changing labor economy. Yeah. So I think, I think the CEO um, or the CEO needs to be, you know, needs to step back and take a very hard look at traditional HR and traditional employee recruiting and and management and take a look at, um, it, it's dramatically different now. So, you know, I mean, that, that's my big, I, I don't want to, I don't want to criticize HR people, but my message to a lot of executives would be, you may be getting a little bit dated advice from your HR people at this point. You need to take a look at the labor and the automation market very differently than you have in the past. I think from an individual perspective, Tan, I would say machines are going to increasingly, they have been and they'll continue to, will take over 
parts of our job. We have to keep evolving. If we keep clinging to those uh, tasks that machines can do more efficiently, we'll get frustrated. True. And the, the other thing is, like I said, the job economy is so diverse and so deep that I think most of us should be thinking about, and you've done it and I've done it, should be looking at our second, third, fourth careers because there are opportunities. I mean, you can change jobs, you can change occupations. I mean, our parents enjoyed lifetime employment. We won't, <laughs> but my God, our parents didn't have one-tenth of the choice that we have in terms of new jobs and new um, ways of making money. So, you know, I'm, again, my optimism is coming through here, but, but from an individual perspective, if you are willing to move, if you're willing to retrain yourself, if you're willing to keep learning, be curious and so on, it's a great time to be alive. <laughs> Agree. Well, you know, you, you, you look at people how some people don't want to move, some people don't want to change, some people want the same job over and over again. You know, I mean, it's like, I understand it's comfortable, but, but, um, that's not the right attitude to have going forward. True. I actually have another question. This was a question about what CEOs should do. Now turn it around. Let's look at the software industry itself. What would you advise ISVs to prioritize? I think, you know, I mean, Don, we, we know the ERP world very well. I'm surprised the ERP world is not rethinking every business process with automation as a front end, you know? So if a process is not scanning stuff, if the process is not using sensors as a data capture tool, True. if a process is not thinking about robotics on the shop floor, 3D printing on the shop floor and so on, it is dated. And I'm, I'm amazed how few ERP vendors are thinking about, about all that. They should be thinking about voice interfaces. They should be thinking about very different ways of moving data along their processes. I mean, yeah. they're still selling keyboard and mouse-based interface. They're still selling MRP to factories. They're still selling, you know, traditional accounting. It, it's, it, 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 ERP is ready, for, it should be dramatically rethinking business process with automation, you know, along the way in every process. Exactly. And, you know, in different industries, it'll manifest itself differently, right? So in groceries, it'll be, it'll be UPC scanners and, and, and um, hospitals, it'll be robotic pharma pharmacies doing certain things. There are tons of examples in each industry of automation and ERP should be um, interfacing with all that automation, making it part of its process. I completely agree. <laughs> uh, I'm actually in the middle of a number of things these days. I'm doing a lot of research about ERP vendors and um, what, what's going on in the space itself. And I've been looking at various vendors, what they're talking about, what they're communicating about. And my conclusion actually is that it's a lot about old principles, making your life or making you as a company a little better, a little bit more cost-effective. So, so there's no one really taking that leadership and that claim that it's about reimagining what can be. 
Well, most of them are saying, are saying we'll give you the cloud, right? I mean, the cloud was exactly. attractive 10 years ago. Anymore, it's like, a, you know, it's like you have to have it. If you don't have it, don't even bother to come to me, right? But we need to evolve beyond the cloud. Exactly. True. Well, thank you very much for your time, Vinny. Thank you so much. Yes. No thanks. And for all of you listening today to this podcast, thank you for tuning in. I had the honor to speak to Vinny Merchandani, the author of Silicon Color. You can find more on Vinny on Twitter. His handle is at DealArchitect. You can, of course, also link to him on LinkedIn, or you can find him on his blog that's all about disruptive trends and economics in technology. His blog can be reached at dealarchitect.typad.com. The goal of this podcast is to share compelling ideas and showcases to inspire what can be when technology and people blend in the right way. It's my strong belief that too much focus is put on automating people out of a process, in other words, cutting costs, rather than scenarios where the unique strength of people are augmented with technology to change the established rules and to deliver value that was unimaginable before. So, with this podcast, I want to make a contribution to change this, to create a broader awareness of what can be, to accelerate the adoption by bringing together you, a tribe of like-minded people and organizations, and lastly, to accelerate the initiatives and solutions that could be created because one idea inspires the other. So if you know about stories that are worth sharing, please send me a message. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas, and that starts with you. If you want to have more information, read my blogs, or obtain information on working with me, just visit me on my website, valueinspiration.com. Thank you for tuning in. And you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast or provide me with your feedback. I'll see you shortly in a new episode. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.